The Federal Auditor General has found that billions of dollars in COVID relief funding was sent out to ineligible recipients. The report explains that some of this money went to people in prisons and to people who were deceased. An independent media outlet has been evicted from the National Press Building on Parliament Hill, and they claim it has to do with how they are investigating other media outlets for the government subsidies they receive. And while most Canadians would give the thumbs up to freezing or even reducing the pay of politicians, True North's own Mark Bonikowski makes the case for why rural politicians perhaps aren't getting paid enough. Hello Canada, it's Wednesday, December 7th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Anthony Fury. And I'm Rachel Emanuel. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. A new Auditor General report has found that the federal government dished out tens of billions in COVID relief dollars to ineligible recipients, including people who were already dead and inmates serving time in prison. In total, the AG flagged $32 billion worth of payments sent out by the federal government under suspicious circumstances, $4.2 billion of which were overpayments to ineligible individuals. Auditor General Karen Hogan said that she has concerns about the lack of oversight and is calling for further investigations into the structure of this. I am concerned about the lack of rigor on post-payment verifications and collection activities, said Hogan. Now, the AG report flagged millions in funds which were sent to the deceased and inmates serving time in prison. That breaks down to a total of $6.1 million sent to incarcerated individuals, while $1.2 million worth of taxpayer funds were sent to the dead. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev posted to social media in response to this that, quote, this waste of taxpayer dollars made Trudeau's inflationary deficits billions higher than they needed to be. These liberals created a mess, and now Canadians are paying the price. Rachel, I had to do a double take when I read those initial sums here, because $32 billion, that's not the total of COVID relief sent out. It's actually in well, breaking $100 billion hundreds of billions of dollars when you add all levels of government together, $32 billion is just uh, the amount that the Auditor General flagged as questionable. It's an insanely high amount of money. It's inexcusable that this mistake was made. I'm curious if the government has any plans for recouping the money or if it's just considered you know, money lost at this point that Canadians aren't going to get back. Yeah, and it's quite something to think that tens of billions of dollars would be money that you're not getting back. And to Auditor General Hogan's point, she says she's concerned about rigor post-payment verifications. Should we then, Rachel, be expecting that the government had done more in verification, or should we be expecting them to do a more rigorous audit now? I think both. I think this money was sent out very quickly without you know, the proper checks and balances in place. And I think that now we need to be looking into it and investigating further. How did this happen and how can we ensure that it doesn't happen again? Yeah, I mean, fraud is fraud. So by all means, if someone needs to have the book thrown at them, go ahead. But I'll never forget watching Justin Trudeau on television in the first wave of COVID when they first created the CERB and those other programs. And he went on television and he stood up in the House of Commons. And he said, look, we got to make sure folks are taken care of. So if you're unsure about all of this and if you got a problem with the rules, just, just file anyway and we'll figure it out later. And I thought, yikes, you don't want to be caught saying that because I almost feel like people who end up going to whatever it is, CRA court, they're going to be able to present that as evidence saying, well, I don't know, the, the prime minister told me just get the money. Don't worry about the details. 
Yeah, absolutely. It certainly sent the wrong message right off the hop. But I have to say, I'm a, one, a little bit curious if the government would have, you know, this much forgiveness for us if we made major errors on our taxes and, you know, just forgot to file billions of dollars. I suspect they probably wouldn't be very lenient with us at all. That's an excellent point. Independent news outlet Blacklock's reporter says they are retaining legal counsel with a plan to fight their recent eviction from the National Press Building which houses outlets from Ottawa's Parliamentary Press Gallery, or the PPG. The eviction stems from complaints made to the PPG by Canadian press journalists Emily Bergeron and Michael Saba, and freelance journalist Helen Buzadi, who claimed Blacklock's managing editor Tom Korski created a toxic environment. The press gallery released a statement Tuesday saying the complaints were well-founded and that Korski's behavior had constituted serious misconduct. According to Blacklock's, Police officers accompanied by PPG executives evicted Corsi from the building last Friday. Corsi claims the eviction was due to their continued protest against media subsidies and was the first of its kind in the history of the National Press building. Helene Buzotti wrote on Twitter, just to be clear, the complaint has nothing to do with subsidized media. This reporter refuses to wear headphones in a collective work environment when he listens to TV press conferences. He calls his colleagues idiots and tells them to F off and threatens them with lawsuits, she wrote. Blacklock's representatives writing in a public statement say, we will fight these people. We are retaining counsel. We will vigorously enforce our lawful rights and the gallery's obligations under the Canada Corporations Act. This is a pretty crazy story. There's been a lot of issues, you know, with Korski back and forth. He said that they've been complaining about him for a while now, and now it's led to this actual eviction process. But it's kind of hard to tell what's actually going on here. There's just a lot of, you know, throwing back and forth of claims. What do you make of the story, Anthony? Well, I agree with you that this is quite wild. And, and I think Korsky is correct in terms of this being unprecedented, at least in recent history. Blacklock's reporter is known for doing a lot of investigative work, primarily at House of Commons committees, where I think in recent years, journalists, for a variety of reasons, have stopped uh, covering to the same degree that they used to. So Blacklocks breaks a lot of stories about things that are being covered at committee. Uh, it does a lot of paper trail work, gets a lot of documents, which again are things that we're, we're seeing less of from more traditional media. And the people behind Blacklocks, they have many years experience. They've worked for some of the biggest news outlets uh, throughout their career. To see this happen is definitely troubling that there's some dispute going on between members of the media up in Ottawa. And as Ottawa always is, I'm sure there's a lot of gossip and a lot of he said, she said going on. It's certainly a shame that they weren't able to reach an agreement of some kind. You know, I've worked in the National Press Building before. I've actually, you know, worked across from Tom at one of the desks there. I have to say, I think it's pretty normal for people to listen to things out loud. In a newsroom, there's often, you know, CBC playing or global playing on the TV. You know, in my newsroom, when I worked in Ottawa, we often had question period playing. So, you know, I thought that was maybe a bit interesting. I didn't know if it was really worth an eviction. Some of the other claims seem to be a little bit more serious. Obviously, no one wants to be told to F off while they're at work. But, you know, I guess that's just sort of an individual thing if it's worth an eviction or not. Rachel, I think this is just a bad look for people watching the media landscape up in Ottawa to see that there are these, these factions or squabbles or whatever it is that's actually going on. We see all those opinion surveys that show that trust in media is declining. Trust in many institutions has been declining in recent years, but it's certainly something where you would hope that people would be able to patch this up and figure it out because it, it doesn't bode well. Uh, for trust in, in, in the audience, trust in viewers. Blacklocks has built a following in recent years and they've succeeded in getting new subscribers. So hats off to them for finding that new model. Uh, but basically the disagreement there is, is, is not a positive picture. 
Exactly. Not only is the disagreement not a positive picture, but I think it does more to sort of redefine those existing arguments about mainstream media versus non-subsidized media with Black Box obviously being a non-subsidized media and very vigorously covering those outlets that do receive subsidies. So, you know, for people that are looking for an argument or they already believe there's unfairness going on, this is only going to contribute to that belief. The surprisingly small pay for small town politicians. That is the headline of the latest column by Canadian News Hall of Fame journalist Mark Bonikoski over at True North. The column tells the story of how the mayor of Arnprior, a small town just west of Ottawa with a population of 9,000 people, has a second job working as a constituency officer for a downtown Ottawa city councillor. Arnprior Mayor Lisa McGee says that while her mayoral pay was recently hiked from $37,000 to just below $49,000, she needs more income, so she has taken on the second job. Now, Bonikoski notes, in some small towns and townships in the Northeast, mayors, reeves, and councillors are paid only a small honorarium, and in some cases are volunteers. Bonikoski also reports on how the number of mayoral posts that are acclaimed, meaning the person is elected or has been re-elected without any opposition, is very high. Bonikoski writes, in 2022, the number of Ontario mayoral or Reeve candidates who reclaimed their seats by acclamation was 139, or one in three, suggesting perhaps that the compensation, well, it just isn't compelling enough people to seek the job. Rachel, I think this is a great talker and that everybody's going to have an opinion on all of this. I think generally the, the knee-jerk response is politicians are paid too high. And up in Ottawa, federal MPs start at about $190,000 a year. And then if you have any more involved posts, uh, particularly if you're cabinet minister, it really goes up from there. But you do find other positions in other areas where the pay is much smaller. Yeah, definitely. And I think looking at this, this is one of those cases. $49,000 is you know, really not enough to live off, especially right now with the inflation crisis that we're seeing. But the question that I have is how much work is it to be a mayor? Is it actually a full-time job? I was always under the impression that it wasn't, that you had some committees to go to here and there and events to go to here and there, but I could be very mistaken in that belief. Yeah, if I can uh, tease another column I might be writing soon in the future, I've been doing research on the New Hampshire model of their state legislature. And one thing that I find really interesting about New Hampshire is they have something like 450 representatives, and they are not a very populous state, and each representative really only represents a couple thousand people. Whereas, for instance, here in Canada, there are many MPs who represent 100,000 people in their riding. And I think the idea of that, and these New Hampshire legislators, they're only paid like a couple hundred dollars as a sort of honorarium to show up for the meetings. And the idea is you're more citizen activists who are very uh, connected and have roots to a small number of people you represent. And that's how you make your voice heard. And I think while, yes, we certainly need to pay a, a good amount to people who are really managing uh, in-depth files for what we know is much longer than an eight-hour workday, maybe we should also explore more of a model where you, you just get more and more politicians in the mix who are more uh, citizen politicians who are paid this honorarium. So I, I think there's a lot of things we need to consider here. Definitely. And, you know, that sounds like an appealing idea, the idea that you'd have a politician that's representing fewer people and is actually maybe able to present the will of those people a little bit more strongly because he's not balancing so many interests of so many different groups. 
So it's certainly an interesting idea. I think more to be discussed here and to examine. And yeah, I agree with you. Everyone is going to have an opinion on this article. I think, again, a lot of people are probably going to be wondering how much work is it to be, you know, a politician, obviously, at the different levels. I think there's a different workload that comes along with those things. That's it for today. And don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.